Hello, Katarina. Hi, Victoria. How are you today? I am happy. The heat has broken here, at least for a while, and it's amazing. There's a cool breeze blowing in the window. It's cool outside. It's great. Same here. That's yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. And I'm making some dinner. I can cook in my kitchen because it was so hot. I just wasn't even, I wasn't cooking at all. Sorry, I had to navigate back. I get it. I know. There aren't mics <laughs> everywhere. There aren't mics. What are you cooking? What's for dinner? Oh, I was just thinking it's like it's like wanting electrical outlets, you know, on every wall and every every quadrant of your house. We want mics on every screen. Uh, I'm cooking some cod and some beet greens and roasted beets and potatoes. Nice. Sounds very nice. I'm just <laughs> so happy to be cooking. <laughs> Hi, Ev. We will start in a few minutes, in around nine minutes. Thanks for coming. I'm roasting orange beets. I haven't cooked them in a long time. Do you make them? Beets? Oh, yeah. I like them. Yeah, beets. I'm doing the orange ones. Nice. Oh, pretty. Hi, Saffron, how are you? Thanks for coming. Um, to unmute, it's on all the way on the bottom right. There's a little microphone symbol. Um, when you press on that, we, we can hear you when you talk. How are you? Can you hear us? Um, let's see if you can hear us. Mm. Oh, thank you, Jake. Okay, you can hear me. Um, Safran, if you, if the unmute doesn't work, um, I don't know if you're at the university, sometimes the Wi-Fi blocks um, social media usage, so if you get off the Wi-Fi and use your cellular data, that usually works. If that's not the case, um, it is sometimes helpful to just restart again. Sometimes the first time people use the app, uh, it doesn't work to unmute. I don't know why, it seems to be a bug. So um, just leaving and coming back helps.
Okay, I just emailed um, Saffron in case she is not hearing. We have so many channels of connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Katarina, do you see the question in the chat for you? Oh, if it's specific for um it says are the order 3D printed or clones. Mm, I think this is a, a methods development. It's for it would work for all kinds of um for all kinds of cells. Um, it's like a new cryoprotective agent that um, lowers like the toxicity and like um, increases the survival rate and lowers the damage. Um, so I think it will be useful for all kinds of cell types, 3D printed or clone cells or um, yeah, so but but it's a good question we can we can ask later if um you know if it works maybe better on on some specific cells we'll we'll ask saffron what was the cryopreservation method that was used with the islet cells do we with them with the islet cells yes yeah it was a specific um like crystallization or something yeah yeah so there is lower crystallization because that them like pancreatic islet cells are really um are really sensitive so they also used um let me i have to go back and okay she can hear us now okay so um to unmute, I'm not sure if it's working. So um, to unmute, it's all the way on the bottom right hand. There should be a little microphone symbol. If you press on that, we should be able to hear you. If that doesn't work, oh, there we go. How are you? Okay, good. How are you? Yay! Good. Welcome. <laughs> Thank <you. laughs> no, thanks for having me. Sure. I'm glad it's working now. And that you can hear us and everything. Yes. <laughs> we'll start in yeah, a few seems minutes. To be right, yeah. Jake sure. already asked a question, but we can we can leave that question for later. I think <laughs> we can. Let's let's wait a few minutes and then we'll we'll start. Yeah, no worries. Was it the Wi-Fi? The issue with the Wi-Fi? Yeah, you were right. I I disconnected from the university Wi-Fi and it worked, which is odd. Okay, great.
We'll start in like two minutes. <laughs> how, how was how was your day? You you yeah, just good. came back from travels, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, so I went to a, a conference in Ireland, um, which is quite a long flight from here. <laughs> right, it is. Oh my god, how how many hours was it? Uh, the flight's about twenty three hours. Um. So you have to do it in two lots. So you can't do it all at once. Um, it's the first flight's like 14 hours and then the second one's about eight or nine. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Really... <laughs> it's horrible. I, I, yeah, I imagine. I never I never had the, like, the longest flight I think I had to was like 12 hours or something. But mm -hmm. Yeah, but, you know, from Australia, like... What's the shortest, like, to another country flight? Um, uh, New Zealand. New Zealand. So from here, New Zealand's only, like, I don't know, four hours, five hours, something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's pretty good. Yeah, that's not too bad. That's, like, yeah. But, um... Yeah, a friend of mine, he now lives in, in Melbourne, so mm -hmm. he Yeah, loves that's it. where I'm based at the moment. Oh nice. Yeah, he's a yeah. he's a researcher, malaria researcher there, so Okay. Uh, do you know which university? Uh, I have to No, right now I don't know. I'm so sorry. No, that's okay. There's there's like eight of them here, so <laughs> oh, well, that yeah, that have a malaria. Okay. Yeah, sorry. I I don't know. He's all he's really cool. He also has a radio station now. Uh, oh yeah, cool. For classical music, yeah. It's pretty good his radio yeah. station. So yeah. It, apparently he loves it. It's wonderful to live in, in good. And he married there and everything. <laughs> like goodness, oh, okay. Cool. Settled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, settled down in, in Melbourne. Yeah, he was a uh, part of my PhD program. We could like choose wherever we wanted to go. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, he chose he chose a lab there and stayed and married and you know, it's happy. Yeah, wow. <laughs> oh, the time is already up. Okay, uh, we can start by um, introducing you. But Victoria, do you have also the same issues that? you pinging and people doesn't really work um I'll it try. doesn't respond um like it responds and then when you click on it again the pings are all gone i'm just looking for somebody to ping who i um okay i'm sorry it's like some to to bring people in it doesn't seem mm. to work today I don't know That's why. Okay. Must be some back. <laughs> um, no, I can ping. I can ping. And then when you close it and open it, then it's gone. Like for me. So uh, yeah, maybe it's just on my. Maybe it's just my. My app not working. Well. So okay. you, so I just pinged somebody who I know. Yeah. Um. Okay. Yeah. Well, we can just start and then figure mm -hmm. it out. Yeah, something's up though for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sometimes when you open, yeah, I think a room doesn't show. Yeah, I don't know. Like what somehow, we're seeing. Somehow it doesn't work. Okay, well, 
Um, welcome to uh, Science Society, Saffron. We really appreciate you taking the time, you know, making the app and coming here. Um, it's really wonderful of you. And, That's okay. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah. And before we start, we'll give a short introduction um, so people get to know you a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Dr. Saffron Bryant, she's a postdoctoral researcher at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. She did her bachelor in my biomedical science um, with honors at the James Cook University and mm -hmm. her PhD at, in chemistry at the University of Sydney. And uh, she is has a really great passion for research. Um, and she's also an author of a lot of fantasy and science <laughs> fiction series. It's amazing. I checked your website. Like <laughs> it's so cool. So thank um, you. Yeah, and she hopes to continue to pursue both a career in science and research, and also continue her career as a writer. I'll share later the link to all your books. It's so cool. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and yeah, before we get into an introduction of your research, Victoria usually asks a couple of interview questions, if that's okay with you. And, and yeah, of course. Just yours. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Katarina. Thank you, Saffron. Um, now hearing about your, your sci-fi career also, <laughs> I'm even more interested in this question. So I'm, we like to give a bit of a, um, a background to the people who are speaking here, to our researchers beyond you presenting your research, we'd like to hear a bit about you. So my question is about your moment of connection and when you recognized science as something that you felt a particular affinity toward and and maybe that's that correlates with your writing i don't know maybe you were a child writer or were always always um conjuring stories your whole life but that is my question and it can go back as far as you'd like in your life story um yeah okay so uh, yes i have been writing stories for pretty much since i could read um so that definitely goes back a while but um in the same way uh, science has been with me my whole life. So um, when I was really young, I had a subscription to National Geographic. And one of the first presents I remember getting for my birthday was like a microscope. And I'd go and, you know, get dirt and stuff from the backyard and look at it under my little microscope. Um, so I honestly probably couldn't tell you when because I feel like I've been interested in sort of science and discovering things for my whole life. Right. Thank you. This is what it sounds like. Can you, <laughs> can you carry us maybe going over some events that brought you up to the current research that you're going to present today? Maybe uh, your education and then up, up to the research? Um, yeah, brief, brief history of me. Um, so, I mean, I did uh, science all through high school um, and then went on to do a, a bachelor in biomedical science, as um, Katarina said. And I sort of had this vision of, I don't know, curing cancer or something. You know, I wanted, I wanted to sort of solve medical problems. 
Um, but then I, I finished my, my bachelor and I wanted to sort of explore different areas and do something different. So the PhD that I did was actually um, tangentially, but kind of the way it was sold to me anyway, was looking at whether life could evolve without water. So looking at whether planets that don't necessarily have water on them could still support life, which has that whole sci-fi aspect, which I just absolutely loved. Um, and then I finished my PhD and, you know, you've, you've got to get work. So I did a, an industry sort of shared placement, which was fine, but not as interesting. Um, but then this, this job came up and I sort of saw this opportunity because cryopreservation has so many medical applications to it, but also my experience in, um, the work I did for my PhD could be applied to it as well. So it was this great opportunity to bring together sort of both areas that I'd researched before, as well as my interest in sort of solving the big medical problems. So I could bring everything together um, in, in a research that I really enjoy. So that's how I came to sort of do the research that led to this paper. Thank you for that. And now at this point, you're welcome to go into your talk and we've got your PDF your slides or your Google Doc pinned above. And then if you would like to have a Q&A following your discussion, then, then we will. And if you'd like to have questions driving your discussion along, then that's fine too. That's all up to you. Sometimes guests will put questions in the chat for you and Katarina and I are happy to manage that and share them with you so that you can just focus on relaxing, be here and <laughs> your work. So the mic is yours. Thank you, Saffron. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm very happy to sort of be question led here because I mean, every everyone can see the PDF, as you said, and um, it's not very interesting for me to just repeat what everyone can read. Um, I guess broad strokes overview, um, cryopreservation has a lot of applications. So it's already used for um, reproductive technologies, it's already used for some stem cells, and we use it a lot in research to um, store cell lines for testing. But it's quite limited at the moment. So there's lots of cell types that we can't store. And at the moment, uh, we can't store any tissues or organs. So one of the main reasons for that is that when you freeze things, you have to include a cryoprotective agent. And this is something that stops freezing or suppresses freezing. So it's kind of like the antifreeze that you might put into a car to stop the engine freezing. Um, the trouble is current cryoprotective agents have basically been the same for the last 50 years. They don't work for many cell types and they can be quite toxic. So the focus of my research has been trying to find new cryoprotective agents that could potentially overcome some of those limitations. So for example, work for new cell types or be less toxic, which might then lead to storage of tissues or organs or more complex materials. Um, so that's sort of the, the broad strokes overview of the motivation. And in this work, I have found a new cryoprotective agent and it, it worked for all the cell types that I've tested so far, um, which were all human cell lines. And so the sort of next step would be to look at storing cells that can't be stored with new technologies. Um, which is where I hope to, to go next. Um, yeah, so that's a summary. Are there any questions or did anyone have anything that they'd like to know more about? So Jake was here earlier um, 
he asked if you can do this also with 3D printed um, um, cells or um, cloned cells, if there's any difference um, for, you know, the, the technique you use. Yes. Um, so I haven't tested with 3D printed ones. Um, the, the cell lines that I've tested it with are generally um, immortal, so cancerous cell lines. Um, but even just normal cryopreservation of 3D structures is not very possible. So people are working on it. So I did just attend a cryo conference and a couple of people presented work on sort of organoids and um, 3D printed cells, but it's still very much in its infancy. Um, and the reason for that is if you imagine, let's go with a, a spheroid, um, a spheroid of cells. If you put that into your cryoprotective agent, um, the outside cells are exposed straight away, but the inside cells aren't exposed for quite some time until it diffuses into the middle. So what you get happening is the outer cells are sort of exposed to this toxic cryoprotective agent for an extended period. And you either leave it in there long enough for that cryoprotective agent to get to the inner cells, which means the outer cells are dying or you freeze it straight away, which means the inner cells don't have any cryoprotective agent. And so they die from the freezing. So it's like this um, complex interplay between over or under exposure. And that's the issue that comes about with these more complex structures. And that's the same reason as why we can't store tissues and organs at the moment is because of this three-dimensional aspect, which limits perfusion. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And then so for how long can you preserve then the cells um like is there a time span and what happens to the cells after that time um, like partially yeah. they're able to be revived like what's the damage then slowly yeah sure um so theoretically if you can get them cryopreserved so if you can get them down to temperature then you can store them theoretically again indefinitely so once you store them at liquid nitrogen temperatures so we're talking like minus 150 minus 190 degrees celsius um all the met metabolic processes stop freezing can't happen anymore you've sort of reached this below freezing state and so anything frozen there will be unchanged indefinitely so we're talking decades of storage the damage happens either during the freezing step or during the thawing step. So once you have solved those two processes, the bit in between, so the, the time frozen is kind of unlimited. Um, so that is why cryopre uh, cryopreservation can be so beneficial to so many areas because you're basically putting an unlimited lifespan on things. Um, as to what happens to cells after freezing, um, if it's successful, then we depends on the cell type. But for the ones that we freeze routinely, we get quite good recoveries. So we're talking like 80% recovery. But for stem cells and others that maybe aren't stored so well, we get much lower recoveries. And that's one of the limitations of cryopreservation at the moment. Yeah. So, so what, what does the, 
like the main advantage of the technique you use like there's less crystals building or um like the cell membrane stays more stable like what is um the main like problem you solve so the cells survive better uh with this with this paper yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. um so most of the process is the same the bit i've changed so traditionally um cryopreservation of these cells is done using dimethyl sulfoxide as the cryoprotective agent and dimethyl sulfoxide is quite toxic um and so that's when you get these limitations of not being able to store 3d structures for example um so what I've used here is I found a new cryoprotective agent, which is significantly less toxic. So in the paper, I sort of do some toxicity assays and I also look at pre-incubating cells before freezing. So I actually pre-incubated cells for up to five hours with this cryoprotective agent without seeing significant loss of viability. So the significance of that is when I was talking about before, if we put a, a spheroid into our cryoprotective agent, if it's DMSO, the outer cells are dying. Potentially with my new cryoprotective agent, which has that lower toxicity, you could put it into um, this agent and the outer cells wouldn't die and you have enough time for it to penetrate into the inner layers. So that's the major breakthrough of this paper is having this new, much less toxic cryoprotective agent. Yeah, that, that's really great. So, um how does it get into the inner layers um does it like does it have to pass through membranes basically and do the membranes close again like is it like so tiny pores basically that it's uh, fine the membrane can just close back up again or how does it work um that's actually not a simple question to answer even dmso which has been studied for like 50 years people still aren't 100% sure on how it's getting into cells or even how it's interacting with them once it's there. So um, I think because these molecules are quite small that they're probably just passively diffusing through the membrane, but one of them's an amino acid, so it's quite possible that there are active channels there as well. Um, but honestly, I don't know. I'm doing follow-up research at the moment to try and identify exactly where these molecules are interacting with the cells to try and um, get more of a fundamental understanding of the mechanisms because like I said this is still unknown even for ones that we've used for 50 years. Oh wow I didn't know that <laughs> and I used to. Yeah. <laughs> exactly people use it all the time. Yeah. Like mainly drugs that are not you know dilute well I we use like and mm -hmm. 10% things over and then it's fine <laughs> so yeah I yeah yeah interesting okay hi Kirko you came onto the stage do you have a question or comment I do I do um uh, forgive me uh for not knowing too much about this but uh kind of a nerd so like stuff like this is super cool um yeah totally so in regards to like the freezing at least from what I've like kind of like heard I should say it's like uh the big problem is like when you freeze all the the water in the cells you know start to crystallize and it expands mm -hmm. so the cells end up rupturing so is the purpose of the cryo uh preserve it or the the, the chemical 
uh, the, yep. the toxicity you guys are trying to manage, is that to keep that expansion from happening during the crystallization or, or what's the, you know what I'm saying? Like, like what's the. Yeah, the, no, totally. <laughs> totally. You're on, you're definitely on the right track. So you're absolutely right. Normally during freezing, uh, water crystallizes into ice, which um, expands and it disrupts the cells physically. Um, at the same time, as water is being removed into ice, you have all the salts and sugars left behind, which are becoming more and more concentrated because you have less and less water present and they actually end up becoming toxic to the cells. So you've got these two mechanisms of damage that occur during freezing. Um, these cryoprotective agents, their main function is to suppress ice formation. So just as you sort of suggested. Um, now this comes from what's called the formation of a glass, so a glassy state. So what this is, it's a low temperature state where water or whatever it is um, forms a solid which isn't a crystal. So it's an amorphous crystal, sorry, an amorphous solid structure. In the case of sort of these, these cells and these cryoprotectants, um, it means that you can reach really low temperatures without ice formation. And that's sort of the critical requirement for successful cryopreservation. So these um, cryoprotective agents facilitate glass formation, facilitate that amorphous <laughs> structure and thus suppress crystalline ice formation. That's their main function. So the like normally like when crystals form it has a shape, but if you take the shape away, then it should form it should solidify into whatever the shape is that it's within so yes yeah pretty much exactly it's sort of like um so i like to picture it if water molecules are forming ice so they're forming that crystal they have that very specific tetrahedral structure right um if they move into a glassy state they basically just stop moving where they are so they don't form that regular crystal lattice they just stop moving does that make sense oh, yeah so as a question when you freeze it, does that cause like, because like as the temperature drops down, like energy stays dropped down. So like, I guess that would that would prevent like reactions from happening. Then right, then yes, exactly. Oh, super cool. Yeah, yeah. So that that's the whole benefit of crap preservation is that if you get to these really low temperatures, um, you're stopping the reactions, you're stopping metabolism. Uh, so you're almost putting the cells into a kind of stasis. So they they don't age, they don't die. And that's why you can sort of keep them indefinitely. So how do you study that interaction between the cryopreservant and what it's freezing? Um, I... Not 100% sure I understand the question. Um, so the cryoprotective agent is just included as an additive. Um, so I don't know if you live in a cold place. Australia is not cold enough to need antifreeze in engines, but some places are. Um, and so people add ethylene glycol, which is the green stuff that you put into your car engine. And it basically does the same thing. So it suppresses ice formation. So even if the temperature is below zero outside, the liquid in your car doesn't freeze. So it's sort of the same thing. So it's, um, it's not necessarily a reaction. It's more changing how the molecules interact with each other to suppress crystallization. 
Does that make sense? So, like, the molecules of the crop preservant are almost like like energy takers or something? So yes. In, in a way, yes, so they're, they're interrupting. So, I mean, water molecules, hydrogen bond to each other very strongly. They have very strong interactions. When you add this thing, it sort of interrupts those interactions between water molecules. So it's um, it changes the most energetically favorable state and it changes the way that those molecules interact with each other. Does that change the freezing point of like the water at the same time? Yeah. Like, will it is it lower or get higher? It, it's significantly lower. So um, depending, so DMSO, which is the standard, for example, it changes the freezing point of water by about 18 degrees. So it lowers it by about 18 degrees. Um, and then at higher and higher concentrations, you eventually don't get any freezing at all. And instead you get that glass transition. Super cool. Thank you for asking questions. That's okay. Yeah, thank you so much for those questions. Uh, Dr. Shah, do you have a question or a comment? Uh, honestly, I was late and I didn't listen to, I mean, to the conversation. Let me take a look on the paper and then I will back to you. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I wanted to ask, how, would it be in theory possible like you know freezing freezes everything and you know all metabolism everything stops in the cell uh is it what what drying <laughs> what a really good way of drying also do the same and then you could rehydrate it and put it back to work would that be a possibility <laughs> one day maybe i i know it's kind of out of the but, you know. Yeah, no, no, I totally get what you're saying. Um, and de dehydration, I mean, um, already in nature, quite a few species use dehydration as a method of dealing with low temperature conditions. So you do have plants and animals that utilize dehydration to try and survive colder temperatures for the same reason, so that they don't get water forming ice. Um, the trouble is that dehydration, you can only dehydrate um, living things so far before it actually kills them. So there's like very specific uh, water contents in cells, for example, that have to be there. And if the cell shrinks or loses more water than that, then it kills them. So dehydration is a good method of surviving moderately low temperatures. So maybe minus five degrees, for example, but it it's not enough to get to the really low temperatures because you will always have some water there and so once you get below say that minus five degrees then you start getting ice formation again and you do have to go to those super low temperatures we're talking minus 190 to get that uh to stop metabolism from happening so um i mean very intuitive of you yes nature already uses dehydration it just doesn't quite give the same duration of storage that the really low temperatures does is that, I'm oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Okay, I was just curious about that with dehydration. I'm thinking of bacillus spores and mm -hmm. dehydrating, um, but I was wondering, is that reason for the death of the cell or which that which you were, the organism, 
is that mechanical then in that case um somewhat i honestly i i haven't looked in detail at dehydration it's just sort of a tangential topic that comes up with cryopreservation because they are kind of related um so i can't give you in-depth um answer to that to some degree it's mechanical there's what's called the minimal osmotic volume of a cell and or um if you go below that volume so if you dehydrate the cell below that then it dies and i think probably part of that is mechanical part of it could be chemical as well like proteins for example generally have a hydration shell and if you get rid of that then the proteins may unfold and denature so the question everyone is waiting for maybe <laughs> how far how long will it take until we can safely freeze ourselves and unfreeze all these people <laughs> That's, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, that is the big question, isn't it? <laughs> um, look, it's it's still a while off. The, the fact that we can't even do simple tissues yet. So um, like cataracts are sort of the, the next the next big thing because they're quite simple tissues. Um, they are what we're hoping to cryopreserve next. It's a long way from cataracts to a heart for example, and then an even longer way to a whole person. And a lot of that comes from having different cell types. So different cells need different freezing conditions. You've got the vascularization issue. So remember, you have to get this cryoprotective agent to the cells that you're trying to store. How do you get that into the brain? Like, how do you make it cross the blood brain barrier and get sufficient um, perfusivity through the whole organ to to keep all the cells alive so uh it's i think it's quite a long way off before we can do people unfortunately so did they are they all wasting money and our energy consumptions basically like are they all damaged the, the people? people who are frozen now mm -hmm. uh, i mean i don't want to get myself into trouble but yes basically with with the science we have now we have no way of successfully freezing people. Um, so I know that there are companies that offer that service, but the truth is with current technology, it can't be done. And if, you know, let's keep away from any commercial problems I may have. If you were to throw a heart into liquid nitrogen right now, you would never be able to thaw it successfully because it doesn't have that cryoprotective agent. It doesn't have anything protecting it from ice formation and so that cell would be and that heart would be ruined so you can only imagine what would happen to a whole person under the same conditions so they have probably in their agreement like a lot of fine prints that say we don't guarantee it you know? absolutely <laughs> absolutely let's take care of not turning off like, the electricity and that's <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> Maybe there's kind of a built-in protection because if you can't really be successfully thawed, then you can't really go after them with a lawsuit. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so please, people, just give them money to your kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, can, they can give them to the college. <laughs> Instead of... <laughs> yeah, well... Um... Um, do, does anyone have more questions? Oh, um, I will ask a question. I'm not sure if you can answer it. He asked, um, 
sorry, you know, it's clubhouse, you know, we, we do kind of also other, other type of questions. So <laughs> is my craving frozen hamsters, how did that differ from modern technique? I'm not sure um, if we ever, micro did we ever microwave frozen hamsters? I never microwaved every, any, any <laughs> Yeah, the history of the microwave actually has that part of its cryptic. Hamsters. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I was curious to what extent <laughs> it, does scaling play a factor here? So it sounded like a loaded question. I too, first time I heard we microwave hamsters, I was like, no, this can't be true. Let me just quickly Google search that. And uh, it turned out that scaling, that you could freeze a hamster and then microwave it thaw and it was fine. But that was based on, I guess, how tightly together the cells were and the size of the cells. Um, was there any, uh, I guess, commentary to what effect these new chemicals scale better than others or to some, or to what extent they scale better? Thanks. Yeah, no, yeah. I, so I, I've also read the, the hamster thing in relation to microwaves. And honestly, it's something that I've been meaning to go down the rabbit hole on because there is this, this story about, um, the, the microwave and the hamsters, but that has never come up in the cryopreservation sphere do you know what i mean and if i'm not i'm not saying that it didn't happen i'm just saying i want to look more into that research because no one at any of the conferences or publications that i've looked at have ever successfully frozen even a hamster heart let alone a whole hamster so to me it seems like this massive gap in oh we microwaved a frozen hamster and it was fine to over here in the cryopreservation sphere where we can't even store simple tissues. So to me, there's this big disconnect and it's something that I wanna like, when I ever have time to actually dive into this rabbit hole and find out where's the disconnect here, what's happening. Um, the best answer I can give to your question is that there is definitely a scale up issue. Um, and the that microwave case is a classic example in that one of the limitations to storing complex materials is that you have to thaw the whole part, for example, at exactly the same rate. So the middle has to be heated at the same rate as the outside. Otherwise, you get um, crystal cracking and that is fatal to the cells. So microwave technology is one way of potentially having uniform heating across complex structures. People are working on other technologies. So nanoparticle magnetic heating is another one that people are working on. Um, but you definitely have a limitation there in the scale that you can use and, and the same with the microwave heating. Yeah, so, sorry, I can't answer little, that properly. It always seemed a little suspicious to me. Uh, it seemed like yes. one of those 1950s, 1960s experiments that was never replicated, but we're also exactly. limited by the, like I, I would find that it would be hard to get that approved by uh, the Office of Ethics <laughs> or, or whatnot. So that kind of study in modern days, I think it would also be prohibited. So it'd be a very controversial thing to test, but uh, also I think necessary just for our own sanity to revisit these experiments every decade to see, hey, hold on a second, did somebody miss something? Because I think there's also a lot of fruit in those kind of situations as well. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think you're definitely right there that um, it would never get through ethics now, at least not in, in the state it was done, like or the way it was done then. Um, but I think to some degree it could be replicated in maybe not whole live organisms, but in organs or smaller parts of organisms. Um, but I, as far as I know, it's never successfully been repeated. So 
there's, I don't know, there's something missing there. So what do lasers work, you know, because there's a new technology that you kind of can have um, a 3D hologram projection of a laser. Mm -hmm. With that, you could probably saw um, if you use then different spectra at the same time, you know, some that penetrate better, others not so deep to have this um, uniform thawing with like, you know, hologram type of laser projection with different, you know, with different lasers. <laughs> Like yeah, no, that's a that's a really interesting idea, and um, I mean, on the surface, it sounds like it it should work. I've never seen anyone try to do rewarming with lasers. So traditionally, we just use a water bath, so you use convection heating. Now that people are trying to look at more complex materials, they're using the microwave and the magnetic heating. But I've never seen anyone use laser. But that doesn't mean that it wouldn't work. Yeah, you could actually uh, form the antenna shape, so through a sort of metamaterial kind of varying the uh, position and, uh, I guess, structure of the, of the dish, you could probably customize it to the shape of the animal or the organ so that you would get this kind of concentric or maybe uh, onion-like layering of the heat. And so to do so evenly, you could do so perhaps with a very specialized kind of uh, um, emitter. The, at least in yep. our case, that's kind of what we do to target uh, a very fine point to make measurements on uh, DNA and RNA. So yeah, uh, very very. Yeah, wow. and to follow, that's very interesting. To, like to do optogenetic stimulation in deeper tissues, um, in you know neural tissues, they they develop this um, that you can simultaneously you can point out on your screen where you want to stimulate, you know, let's say 20 different neurons and where they are and how deep they are. And then that thing projects that and uh, should just stimulate right there in the tissue. Wow. Yeah, at that depth. So that's pretty cool. So yeah, I was thinking that, but it's way deeper than let's say a brain slice. So it should mm -hmm. have consist of like different wavelengths because some wavelengths are better to go deeper others can just stay on the surface surface maybe but it would be very expensive because lasers are really <laughs> like it would be probably a half a million or million dollars device to like <laughs> Not yeah just throw, throw a hamster when you can just put it in the microwave <laughs> so if the microwave works like, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's really interesting. So, so why is it so important to unfreeze all at the same time? Like, why is does it matter? Because you said basically you shear can, forces, shear forces, mm. uh, from yeah. the stuff around. Because yes. if, oh, okay, okay, from the other stuff around yeah. that would then disrupt the. Uh, I think. Yeah, yeah. So quite often you, you still get um, ice formation in some of the extracellular spaces. Um, and so if you have uneven heating across the surface or across the uh, material, then you can get cracking. Um, so you, you sort of get fracturing um, in, in the structure, which, yeah, exerts forces on its shear forces. 
um, for example, and that, that also can kill, kill the cells. I have a random question. And it's kind of mm. like really towards the opposite end of the spectrum. So since uh, freezing like cryopreservative like methods tend to kill the cells, could you use it as like a way of like disinfecting? Like more like solid surfaces? Like like will it even uh -huh. kill like things like endospores? You know, like like typically harder to kill? Yeah, well, this this is the trouble, right? Um, <laughs> bacteria and prions and viruses are so much more hardy than mammalian cells. Um, but having said that, so the, that cryo conference that I just attended, um, someone actually presented work where they use cryo to um, decontaminate plants. So they were they use shoot tips. So um, I don't know much about plant biology, but shoot tips are sort of juvenile plant bits. Um, and that's what they often cryopreserve when they're storing plant species. But there's like this infection that happens on shoot tips. And what they actually found is that you could cryopreserve um, these plants and the bits of the plant that died from cryopreservation were the same bits that were infected. So you could actually sort of sterilize or um, fix, I guess, these shoot tips and get rid of the infection through the cryopreservation process. So it definitely could be used for that, but it is definitely complicated because pathogens just have to be annoying and be more hardy than mammalian cells, for example. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for answering that question. Um, let me check really quick in the chat if I'm not missing anything. Um, so what's um, your next step, like how many different cells are you going to test? Like, are you going to test 3D printed first or small organs or what's the, what's the next step? Yeah. Um, so this cryo conference I just went to was really good because you have people working on all different aspects of cryopreservation. And when it's only when I go to these things that I realize how big a field it is. So for example, people working on plants. Um, and so I have managed to make a few connections through that. So um, I'm hoping to start work with a few different people and they already are trying to cryopreserve things. So it's a case of me sort of giving them my new cryoprotectant and saying, hey, try this. Maybe it will work better than what you're currently doing. So um, I've made a connection with a, a plant person. So they're going to try uh, my cryoprotectant with their plants. I had uh, someone who works with coral here in Australia reach out to me. So he's going to try this with coral. And then I also spoke to um, a group in the US who do cells and they are edging towards organs, even though that's still quite a way off. So I'm hoping to establish a collaboration with them as well. Um, the truth is it's much easier for me to give out my cryoprotectant to people who are already have the facilities for these different materials than it is for me to get the materials here where I don't necessarily have the facilities to grow them or freeze them. So for example, I don't have anything here to grow plants in. Um, so it's much easier for me to send out my cryoprotectant. So that's sort of the next step now is to work with these groups to try and store new things with this new method. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. I, I hope uh, it works out because 
if I one day spend all this money on freezing my body. <laughs> work. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> no, very true. No, but I think it's it's um so I think it's really great because um we can to you know it would be a huge huge deal if we can if we can freeze our more cell types and also more mm. um you know organs or part of organs so i think for pancreatic isolate cells it's huge we we had the guest speaker here that did some advancements but um you know you cannot you, you cannot really um you have to kind of freeze them i think in order to preserve them well enough and if you want to use your own, especially while you still have them, I think. Um, so yeah, th there's a lot of different um, types where you really want to freeze stuff mm -hmm. early on. Will that also be a, a big deal for like embryons, embryos? Like if you have kind of in the future, you you think you will have issues with um, um, having children? It, it could be. So, I mean, the good thing is that right now technology for assisted reproduction, it's actually come quite far. I mean, it's a hugely profitable industry as well. So a lot of research has been done in it. And um, we can already successfully preserve reproductive tissue quite well. Um, having said that, this uh, improved methods are always better, right? It makes it cheaper, it makes it um, more accessible, and it could also make it more successful. So greater rates of success. Um, so yes, it, it could help that area, but having said that, that area is already significantly advanced to, compared to many others. Um, so my sort of envisioning for this is in organ transplant, because that's the area where I see this sort of technology having the most benefit. And um, the papers I've read have suggested that if we could cryopreserve all the organs that are currently donated, we could get rid of organ waiting lists in just a few years. And so the issue is that um, people pass away and um, you know they give up their organs, but suitable recipients for those organs aren't present right then. So the organ unfortunately gets discarded. If we had the capacity to cryopreserve that organ, then we could effectively keep it indefinitely until a suitable recipient came up. And so by creating this almost organ bank, you can eliminate organ shortages. Now, that is a long way in the future and my research is nowhere near close to touching that. But to me, that's like the, the big thing at the end of this research tunnel. Oh yeah, that would be a huge achievement. So um, yeah, that's wonderful. So what would be, let's say you can preserve some but let's say up to 10 layers or cells or something like mm. that what do you have already in mind type of the the things you would change improve if that would be the case like is there already a plan like a next step plan in your mind um well Beyond sort of um, testing it with new things, like like I mentioned with these potential collaborators that I've reached out to, um, if you could store even a few cell layers, then we're starting to look at being able to store skin grafts, for example. So even, even simple things like skin grafts, I mean, people are, are 
on waiting lists for skin transplants as well. So even being able to store simple tissues like that could have major benefits for a lot of people. Yeah, retina would probably also be a huge deal. Yes. Too. Yeah. Like yeah. All, um, this um, few layer type of um, organs. Yeah. Mm. That that would be, yeah, that would be amazing. Um, so, yeah, you said in principle we can store them forever. Did you do any RNA sequencing or something like that where you could... Like, is there any type of inducing some mutations through um, that is are commonly known, or is that not the case uh, from from this process? Um, so I haven't measured it for mine, um, but it has been done in the past where um, sequencing is done sort of pre and post cryopreservation to see if cells have mutated during the process. Um, as far as I'm aware, there's, there's not significant damage from the process. Um, but it, if we were to go to, for example, trials or, uh, medical applications for this, then that's something that would have to be done just to make sure that exposure to this specific cryoprotectant, for example, doesn't induce changes, um, at a genetic level. Um, but. I am cautiously optimistic that it wouldn't just because the components I've chosen are quite biocompatible. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. Um, maybe the, the microwaving the hamster, I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. I, I really wish you all the best um, for very egoistic reasons because you know <laughs> older and maybe one day we need a replacement and yeah <laughs> taking care of um you know you're doing research for all of us so um does anyone else have have any more questions we are almost the hour is almost up so um yeah, you, yeah go ahead yeah. victoria and Dr. oh Shaw. go ahead you go first dr Shaw, please you go, Victoria, you were first. Go no, um, please, I'd like you to go. My question is is a little bit on a tangent. I'm going to ask something about um, Saffron sci-fi connections. So please, you go first. <laughs> sure, thank you. So my question is about the allotransplant because we had, a, I mean, I was not at the beginning of the conversation. Maybe mm. you just mentioned about that. And you know that uh, we have, a, I mean, immune rejection and also yes. about the immunogenicity. So I was just wondering, maybe you have further information about that. Also the age of the, I mean, organism matter as well. So do you have any you know, further information that you can share with us? Um, I don't have much to share. So the research that I've done so far has been on single cells, um, which is sort of the first step um, to developing new cryopreservation protocols. So, so far I've looked at single cells and they've been fine. Moving up to organs is, will be a long process, um, and may not even be within my research career, for example. Um, I can't really comment on what the effects on, um, rejection and such would be 
it would be something that would have to be investigated once we successfully cryopreserved an organ. But like I said, that, that could still be quite a while away. Can they uh, change the viability of the organ after I'm mean, done with the cryo? Um, well, at the moment, so the, the most recent research I've seen on organ preservation, all they did was look at sort of morphological changes. So they were looking at, I think they did um, hearts and kidneys. So they used, they froze them and then thawed them and then used uh, microscopy and staining to look at the cells and the the thawed ones looked okay. They looked similar to fresh and they did some metabolic viability and they seemed okay, but they didn't do any functional assessment. And it seemed to be that uh, uh, over time after thawing, the viability sort of went down and down and down. So um, it's still very much in progress. What about lipid composition? Uh, I mean, did you found any lipid, lipid, I mean, composition change during cryo or not? I didn't do any lipid analysis on the cells. So um, this first paper is sort of just proof of concept almost that we can store cells with this new cryoprotective agent. The paper I'm working on now is more of a functional assessment. So I'm using um, Fourier transform spectroscopy and uh, neutron reflectivity and a few other techniques to try and nail down what changes these cryoprotective agents are causing to the cells. So that's the next step. Um, but I definitely haven't done a full lipid analysis. So what are those parameters that you might evaluate for the qualification after cryo? Um, so for that second paper, so I am looking, for example, at where these cryoprotective agents are binding. So are they inserting into the lipid tail regions or the head groups, or are they not associating with the lipids at all? Are they causing nucleic acid damage, for example? Um, so those are the sort of functional assessments that I'm doing at the moment. That's right. Victoria, do you want to ask your question now? Yes, I would. So, Saffron, thinking about your writing, I am curious how much, if at all, your research is, is showing up in your writing and if you use that as a vehicle to raise awareness about your work or the necessity for cryopreservation or um, organ and availability or things like that. Um, yeah, that is a, that's a fun question. So I definitely think of my sci-fi more as uh, space fantasy. So, uh, you know, there's plasma pistols and, you know, faster than light travel and those sort of things that may not be very scientific. So it's a bit soft scientific, but I definitely include social messages in my writing. I can't help it. Um, and in fact, one of the main reasons that I started publishing my sci-fi was that I was so sick of reading fantasy and science fiction that had these weak female protagonists um, or no female protagonists at all. And it really bothered me about the genre because I liked reading it, but then I kept being confronted with this sort of gender stereotypes. So I wrote my first science fiction series with a 
strong female protagonist. And that was sort of my way of having social commentary on that. Um, that's evolved a bit since then. I always still have um, strong females in my books, but I have also, I also try and touch on other issues. Um, I won't <laughs> hijack your podcast to get political, but I definitely have included references to certain events or philosophies. Um, and it's definitely a way of me sort of getting a message out there and definitely sort of the importance of science as a field has definitely come up in my writing. Absolutely. Thank you. And, and I have to say that I believe here in Science Society, we would acknowledge that life is political. For many of us, we can't escape um, subjects that are political. For example, healthcare should not be politicized, but it is. So mm. if you care about healthcare, if you're not, um, you know, if you need to be a recipient of uh, healthcare for all, it is political. Our lives are political and we don't shy away from, from those topics. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. That's okay. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, and congratulations to like being such a successful in, you know, two uh, careers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's wonderful. And that you did that out of spite. <laughs> like, <I laughs> writing a children's book. I, I almost do everything out of spite, like whatever. I yeah. <laughs> me, so I totally get it. And it's wonderful to hear for me at least so <laughs> that's good <laughs> yeah oh yeah victoria she has a book club here and she says she uh welcomes your book so maybe uh, <laughs> excellent <laughs> maybe victoria will, will contact you and invite you to her book club one day <laughs> yeah feel free victoria if you'd like <laughs> Uh, thank you. This is Victoria um, in the mezzanine. <laughs> thank you for mentioning that. Okay, so thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. We um, really cheer you on with your work. It's really important for both uh, your books uh, that have messages and, and, and are cool and, um, you know, your work as a researcher. Um, please you know keep doing it <laughs> if you and then um yeah please always come back if you have something you would like to share with us uh, you're always welcome back and um yeah um thanks thank for coming. You. no thank you very much for having me this has been a lot of fun yeah that's the most important part <laughs> absolutely <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, for you it's morning, so enjoy the rest of your day. Um, Thank you. Summer is coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know how bad the weather gets in Melbourne. Does it get really cold or is it kind of moderate? Um, I'm going to call it mediumly cold. So it's like, I don't know, about 15 or something. Oh, that's um, okay. That's it's not so bad. Yeah, yeah, that's not too bad. Okay. <laughs> not like New York. <laughs> New York gets so bad in the winter. And in the summer it gets really hot. So anyhow. Yeah. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your winter then. <laughs> and um, Thank I you very much. I'll be back soon. Thanks for coming, everyone. 
Uh, if you like rooms like this, follow the club. We have tomorrow Dr. Tasker talking about how fear memory burns into brains. There's new um, um, discoveries he made about fear memory. It's It will be really interesting and it will be at 9 p.m. EST, so one hour earlier than today. Okay, thank you so much, Saffron. Um, Brilliant. Thanks, Katerina. Bye, everyone. We'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you.